This is episode 148 with author, coach, and ultra-running legend, Miss Lisa Tamati. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm excited that you're here. That means you're a runner that wants to improve. Here on the podcast, we give you new ideas, new tools, and strategies for improving your running. Whether you'd like to reach a new distance, qualify for a certain race, or avoid that next injury. I'll be bringing you the leaders in the fitness industry to help you reach more of your big running goals. From elite runners to performance psychologists, strength experts, running coaches, best-selling authors, and physical therapists who can make our running dreams become a reality. Because as I like to say, knowledge is a competitive advantage. The more you know, the better decisions you'll make about your training. Now, if you're new to the show, we have 147 other episodes, a video channel on YouTube, or our home base, strengthrunning.com, where you can see all of our coaching programs, detailed guides on everything from injury prevention to running for beginners, to how you can build mental skills to always stay mentally tough and focused. I'm also excited to continue our sponsorship with Path Projects. They're doing some new things right now. First, they have a whole new website that you can check out at pathprojects.com, and I'm really excited about their new three-inch Sykes running shorts. My other path shorts are five-inch, and they're great for strength training, casual wear, working out in the yard, but these three-inch shorts are going to be my go-tos for running. Check out all of their products at pathprojects.com. All right, our guest today is Lisa Tamati, one of New Zealand's best ultra runners. Lisa is a professional ultra endurance athlete with 25 years of experience running some of the toughest endurance events in the world. She's actually finished more than 140 ultra marathons. She has a few national titles, a number of podium places in international races, and a lot more expeditions under her belt. My favorite is when she illegally trekked across the Libyan desert, something I can't say that I'm clamoring to do. Perhaps one of the more illustrative stories of Lisa's drive and grit is when she quit ultra running to help her mother recover from an aneurysm. She shares that story in our conversation, so I won't spoil it, but I wish we did have video of us speaking because my jaw was just on the floor. I think you're going to find this episode insightful, inspiring, and hopefully a call to go all in with your goals. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Ms. Lisa Tamati. Lisa, welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. Super excited to be here, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Yeah, well, it's an honor to speak with you. You just have this incredible story uh, your entire life of overcoming hardship and accomplishing incredible feats of of endurance and these big challenges. And today I wanted to talk more about how you deal with some of those big obstacles that you've had in the in the past. But uh, maybe first I want to know what ignited this spark in you? You've run over 140 ultra marathons, and that doesn't even really begin to summarize all the, the kind of crazy things you've done over the years. So, I mean, what initially drove you to some of the most extreme events that are on the planet today? I think um, I, I grew up in a family, Jason, where I had a um, 
wonderful Kiwi kid upbringing. I live in New Zealand and in the 70s, so you can work out how old I am. Um, and I just had a real outdoorsy childhood. And I had a I had a dad, though, who was really a cool dad. He was very tough and he expected a whole lot of us. And so, you know, he put a lot of pressure on us. He wanted us to represent our country in sport and be the best academically and, you know, all those good things that, that parents want for their kids. But there was quite a lot of pressure as a, as a youngster. Um, and I was a gym when I was young so uh, that taught me an awful lot about discipline and training and um, you know I was quite good at it until I got to like puberty age and you know grew up too tall and too too athletic really too muscular and and uh, wasn't the right body shape for it Um, and that was my first really experience of of failing and and not being the right thing and not being good enough so I had this real need because you know as a teenager you're going through all sorts of crap anyway um but this really mucked up my psyche really um and made me want to prove that I wasn't useless and I wasn't hopeless like I was being told because I was you know told that I was overweight when I wasn't I was told all these sort of things that, that gymnasts unfortunately are often exposed to um and so that sort of set in my brain that I have to be the best at everything that I do and um, I was really determined anyway. I think genetically I just popped out just being really bloody-minded. <laughs> so my mum always used to say, you know, like even from the time I could walk, I was just off tearing off having adventures and she had to keep her eyes in the back of her head, you know, because I'd just jump in the water or do, you know, no fear type thing. Um, so a combination of those things sort of led me to really want to test the boundaries of what I was capable of. Um but I'm, I have, like, as a, as a runner, I have, I'm not like you, I have no natural talent whatsoever. I have, um, I, I was an asthmatic um, from, you know, two years old um, was when I got diagnosed with asthma and I was in and out of hospital my entire childhood and I have a very small lung capacity. So I didn't have a good set of genes when it came to being able to run fast. But when it came to going long, I found that I had really good a good skill set for that. So that's ended up what I eventually got into. And not until I sort of didn't get into the running until I was whoa, 20, 29 or so. Um, prior to that, I'd been into like adventures, cycled through 25 countries and climbed mountains and kayaked and canoed and did all that sort of stuff but I hadn't been into the into the running but um later on got into that and yeah that's that was the beginning of the story (laughs) so to speak well it's an incredible story and you know you're not the first person who's become a a very good runner and I'm going to disagree with you Lisa you have an extraordinary amount of talent anybody who's able to complete the ultra marathons and the kinds of challenges that you have has a a certain type of talent that is undeniable. And you're not the only great runner that has uh, a a gymnast background. I talked to Courtney Freericks on the podcast a while back. She's one of the United States' best steeplechasers. And she was a gymnast before she got into running. And so I I think uh, being a gymnast, I, it does help you with body awareness and strength and balance and uh, I think some really great things for running. Um, I should add that my wife did some gymnastics before she started running, although <laughs> probably not at your level or or Courtney's level. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about some of these challenges and ultra marathons that you've done. I mean, you've 
you've done the Badwater Ultra Marathon through Death Valley. You, uh, I read that you illegally crossed the Libyan desert on <laughs> foot. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> clearly some things that, you know, a majority of runners will never do. And, and I'm just curious, what goes through your mind before you attempt something like that? Like the morning of the event, what are you thinking to yourself? Wow, that's a good question. So I'm not like I'm terrified usually. I'm absolutely in that moment where you wake up and your eyes open and it's that day, you know, where you've got this big massive mission that you've been perhaps preparing for for 12 to 18 months or something and it actually, you know, is now standing in front of you. There's no way that you're not terrified. Um, But I've sort of learned the value of pushing yourself outside your comfort zone and doing stuff that you – yeah, just want to run run away from sometimes because you learn so much when you do, and when you've committed to something like this, there's no way out usually. So you've you've got to get you just you've got to do it. There's no there's no choice. Um, but it's certainly not a a, a state of like always total. Uh, I've got this and I'm in control and I've prepared super well. You you you're quite often feeling quite terrified and quite, oh, my God, how am I going to get through this? Um, and you have to pull in your focus. Like, there was one time when I was, I was running through New Zealand, right, so I was doing this for charity, so it wasn't a race. It was so 2,250 Ks um, through through my country. I don't know how much miles that is. I think ooh, 16, 17, something like that, 100. Um, and I was standing at the start line, and I'd been so busy with all the preparations and stuff and, you know, everything that goes into doing something like this that I hadn't actually thought about running 500 kilometers a week. <laughs> and I was standing on the start line and I had a massive panic attack, you know, and you got the media and you got everybody watching and your crew and everything. And yeah, and I just fell to pieces and I went over with my mum, who's always been my greatest supporter. And I, and I had a big bawling session and I was going, mum, I can't do this. I'm terrified. How am I going to do this? Because you're staring down the barrel of this huge distance, right? And you've really just bitten off more than you can chew. Um, and she she told me the best piece of advice. She said, I want you to stop, you know, get yourself together, take a deep breath, and I want you to aim for that letterbox up there. You know, I want you to get to that first power pole. I want you to think only on the first half an hour and getting out of the gates and getting this whole machine rolling and don't think further than that. You don't have to run 2,250 right now or today. You have to run to that letterbox. And that was a perfect analogy of how you break down massive goals, you know, whether it's in running or in life. If you can just keep your focus, when you get that panicky feeling, if you can just keep your focus on the next step in the process and not think too far ahead, that's been a really huge piece of advice for me. But, you know, to get back to your original question, it's not a, you know, that you don't feel fear or you don't feel trepidation and anxiety. It's, It's learning to control your physiology to the degree that you can still function and you you take on these challenges, you know. I think that that's it's not that you have an absence of fear or, or anything like that, right? And I think uh, courage is is action in the face of fear rather than the absence of fear. And, oh, and I think good. that's a that's a good way to put it. And you know, Lisa, I think it's very encouraging to hear uh, a runner like yourself who has done so many incredible things to say. I've had an anxiety attack right before a race. I was terrified right beforehand. I don't have it all together because I think a lot of the times what happens is that, you know, we look at 
people like you, people who have, you know, illegally crossed the Libyan desert. I mean, you're like a superhero. You're doing things that most normal people will never do. And I think the default is to think that you have it all together, that you are someone who just sets a goal and then you go do it and you accomplish it. And your life is always just perfect. And you're just always accomplishing these crazy goals. And you know, to step back from that and for you to acknowledge the anxiety, the fear, uh, it, it, you know, it puts you on a, a human being level pedestal. And it reminds all of us that, you know, these are skills. These are things that we can learn and develop over time. So if someone does have pre-race anxiety, if someone does, you know, lack the focus to look at, you know, uh, the beginning of a race and chunk it out rather than, you know, imagining the entire goal in its enormity, then, you know, that's very encouraging. And, and I think if, if we look at these as skills that we can build over time, we're going to be much better runners. Absolutely. You couldn't have said it any better. And it's so wrong to think, you know, because, and this is a problem in our world with social media and the way things portrayed in the media, um, that you know you sometimes see the surface level we're seeing everybody's best moments okay when we look in social media and we see everybody finishing races and holding up medals and it's all fantastic we did not see the struggle the fear the tears the obstacles the injuries that on the way to that one moment and so therefore we get this completely skewed view I think um, sometimes uh, when especially in our nowadays world with the social media the way it is um, that that everybody else is doing more than me that everybody else is better than me and is achieving more and it's just not true we're all going through our own struggles we're all fighting our own battles we are all having to overcome obstacles and the the only difference is that we t- keep taking another step and keep being persistent and consistent and keep getting up again when you get knocked down. And these are lessons that, you know, I'm really passionate about people understanding that, that, um, you know, like failure is a part of this process as well. I've failed on many, many occasions, you know, but when you read the bio, you don't necessarily see the failed races, the ones where you totally bombed out or embarrassed yourself or did something stupid or injured yourself, you don't see those moments. You don't see the the, the anguish, the anxiety, and any of those sort of things that we as normal human beings have. Um, and I very much, um, you know, believe it's just about building the tools in your toolkit to be able to keep going when when times are tough and building that mental resilience and this is something I wish we would teach our kids more about in school that it it is life is going to throw you curveballs and you better learn to get back up after you've been knocked down because that is the biggest skill that we have I think and and just being able to take another step and it's okay to cry and it's okay to have your moment and it's okay to be vulnerable and all of those sorts of things but what is, is non-negotiable is that you get back up. It's not you, you have to get back up, you know? Yeah, I can't agree more. I think, uh, you know, th- this veneer of perfection that I think a lot of people think that other people have is is exactly that. It's just a veneer. It is an illusion. And, and nobody really is perfect at all. Um, and, you know, I remember when I was in high school, I took a psychology class. I was fortunate to have an elective and the, the book that we were required to read for this class was emotional intelligence. And, you know, here I am, 
20 years after I graduated high school, and I'm still thinking about this book, Emotional Intelligence, that I read in high school because it had such a profound impact on my relationship to your mindset and your emotions and how you deal with you know, that aspect of your life. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the emotional skills that we're talking about today should definitely be taught in school. And, you know, certainly, you know, when you were growing up in, in the 70s and 80s, and I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it really wasn't taught. But I'm encouraged now because my, my daughter is actually getting some emotional intelligence lessons at school. And so wow. maybe we're, we're moving a little bit in that direction and in some schools. So uh, that's, that's somewhat encouraging. Um, now, I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, this this issue of pre-race anxiety. And I, and I know, you know, you just shared the story about how, you know, you're having yeah. kind of this meltdown right before the start. But I imagine that a lot of the times before starting these big events, you know, you've built the skill of learning how to stay calm, how to avoid that debilitating anxiety, because you've just done it so many times. Um, how can a runner who's you know, doing occasional half marathons, park runs, or marathons, learn from your experiences to help eliminate this this debilitating stress that we so often experience right before a race. I think I think a certain amount of that 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 fear and that stress is is probably both unavoidable and a good thing because it keeps you motivated, it keeps you fighting towards that goal, and it keeps you training in the discipline. Because when you know that you know the marathon is in six weeks time or whatever and it's you know you've got to get out of bed early and get to training that 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 slight level of fear <laughs> can be very motivating to get your backside out there you know um and so it's not always a bad thing but where it becomes debilitating is when like like at that moment on the run through New Zealand um is when it becomes paralyzing and when it stops you actually taking action and there are just some some very simple things that we can do to prepare ourselves ahead of time for the actual day of the battle, if you like. Um, and these are things like um, doing some uh, doing some exercise about looking what your why is. Why are you doing this? Okay, so when we, you know, and as a coach, you do this with your athletes too, no doubt. You, you, I want to peel back the onion. I want to find out why somebody's training for this marathon or, or, or whatever it may be. And I'm, I'm asking them and they might say to me, oh, it's just been on my bucket list forever and I want to do it. And I go, that's not a reason. You know, that's not what I'm trying to get at is the, the layers under that on, onion. I want to say, but, but why do you have it on your bucket list and what is it really? And they might say to me, well, you know, I, I really want to be a good role model for my kids and I want them to see their mum doing something really good and being strong and being disciplined and I want to show them that. Now we're getting somewhere. You understand? Like Now we're actually getting to the emotional drivers behind this goal. And when you can start to t tap into what those real emotional reasons, and even if they're negative, like I know in the very first, you know, uh, few races that I was doing, it was definitely to prove to somebody that I wasn't useless because I'd been told I was hopeless and had no talent and, and I was going to show them. And I tell you what, that's a powerful motivating force because you are not going to let them have the last word, are you? So you are going to be emotionally driven to pull out all the stops to overcome all of the obstacles to deal with the pain because you're emotionally driven by that um, and it can be a positive or it can be a negative motivational driver but it will have the same effect at the end of the day it will make you 
do what it takes to get there. And it's about also having, uh, I, I call it my go, going all in strategy. When I take on a, a big project, um, and it can be in business, it could be uh, like a rehabilitation journey, which I've just been through with my mum, which we'll get into later. Um, it can be a, an ultra marathon. When I have one of those massive goals, then I go all in 100%. I don't go, oh, I'm going to have a go at it. No, I'm going, I'm in, I'm in, I'm whatever it takes, I'm going to do to get there and I'm going to commit myself. And when you can get that sort of level of, of commitment from yourself, and this takes a bit of thinking and a bit of really reflecting on everything and understanding that why, then you will get there. If you really, really want it, you will get there. You'll find a way around every obstacle that comes and your brain will start to search out for the, the connect the dots you know, we have this thing called the RAS filter, the reticular, um, what is it called, the reticular um, activating system. And its job is to pull out the important things that, that you experience every day that you need to know about. So we have like 60,000 thoughts going through our heads a day apparently. Um, but if you put in your head as a goal, uh, I want to buy a red car, then it will see every red car in the town that you're in, right? Every time you look up, there'll be a blooming red car going past and you'll be going, wow, I didn't know there was so many red cars. And it's because the brain is focused on that and so it's, it's pointing it out to you, whereas other information, the blue cars, the black cars, whatever, are not being recognized. So when you set a goal, your brain subconsciously goes and searches out information and facts and people and things that can help you get to your goal. And therein lies the power of goal setting, okay? So I think... Um, and learning to control your physiology to get back to your original question, which is, um, you know, how do you deal with the fear, the butterflies, the anxiety, the adrenaline? Um, there's a few like little tricks like um, diaphragmatic breathing, doing some deep breathing exercises every time the anxiety starts to come up. And I use this every single day of my life whenever I'm starting to feel triggered or stressed or, you know, I've got deadlines looming and things coming at me. I'll just do three deep diaphragmatic breaths. So I do them in a like a box breathing um, format. And that just lowers the, the, the stress hormones in my body. It, it deals with the cortisol and the adrenaline. It brings things back into balance and it stimulates my parasympathetic nervous system and it just calms me down. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling not quite so anxious. So, so doing something as simple as deep diaphragmatic breathing, you know, especially on the day of the event when you're on your way to the start line or whatever, and you can't get a grip on yourself, start doing those deep breathing exercises. And then another one of the tricks that I would do, and I do this like every time I get up on stage to speak or whatever, and I'm terrified, I'll, I might even go into the toilets or something, and I'm doing some what they call power posing. Have you heard of that, Jace? It's um, oh sure, yeah. Yeah, power posing. So you're, you're standing there like Rocky on top of the steps in Philadelphia. You know, you're, you've got your arms in the air. You're, you're standing straight. Your chest is out. You're beating on your chest if you want to like Tarzan. But what it does is it, create, it, it releases testosterone into the body. And testosterone is your hormone that will make you feel bold and strong and courageous. And women have testosterone, uh, testosterone as well. It's not just for men. We have a little bit of it as well, not as much. But it will release a bit of testosterone, and that will make you feel more courageous. That will make you feel stronger. 
if you're, you know, sitting there with your shoulders hunched during the fetal position, you're going to feel vulnerable. And if you're standing there strong, powerful, your brain, your brain is actually quite easy to trick <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> because we, we are just chemical beings with all this neurotransmitters and hormones and, and uh, different parts of our brain doing different things. And if you learn to tap into the right thing at the right time, you can control your physiology. So those are two tricks. Another trick that I use is when my emotional brain is starting to take over, so my amygdala, this is a, a part of your brain that um, controls all your emotional responses, when that's starting to, to take over and I'm feeling out of control and emotional, if I can turn on my prefrontal cortex, so this is where your, 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 your logical you know, unemotional thinking takes place. And when you have a response from your emotions, a lot of the blood is taken away from that prefrontal cortex. So you are now in a fight or flight state. So you're ready to either fight or run away from the lion. And this is where it's come from back in the caveman days. But if you can actually give yourself a little um, logical problem to solve, a puzzle, uh, whether it's counting, I, I count backwards, from 100 and lots of seven, and it makes me have to think. I have to go, oh, yeah, 193 or oh, 87, you know, and I have to think. And when I do that, I'm pulling the blood supply back to the free prefrontal cortex, and it turns off the amygdala to some degree so that you can then get a grip on your emotions again. So all these little wee tiny tricks that you pick up along the way can really, really help you uh, deal with the pressure that, that uh, athletes are under when they're performing. And uh, another really good trick is uh, visualization, which you've no doubt talked about a hundred times on the show. But visualizing, seeing yourself at the event, seeing all the colors, what are you wearing? How does it smell? What are the noises? Seeing yourself powerfully running through this, this event and being super strong and feeling just on fire and seeing yourself crossing that finish line. And you repeat this vision over and over and over in your brain. And your brain does not differentiate between what is imagination and what is real, it is actually firing the same synapses and doing the same things, and it thinks that it's already happened. So when you actually stand on the start line, it's like, huh, I got this. I've been here before. I know this. And when we know something, we're less scared of it. We're able to cope with it. So that's a really another powerful trick to, to, to do, you know, to keep a control of your, your emotions. Lisa, this was incredible. There are so many great pieces of advice here. And, you know, I, I think these are all incredibly helpful. You know, when it comes to, uh, you know, we're talking about power poses, you know, my track coach in college was actually a, I think he was the 1982 Olympian from Venezuela in the 800 meters, William Wykey. Mm -hmm. um, as a guy who's run 145 or 146 in the 800. And, you know, he, you know, he was in a, a 50, 55 years old at this point though. And he, uh, but still carried himself like, you know, an Olympic level athlete yep. and he had a swagger to him. He's <laughs> he just thrust his chest out and there is no denying that you hang out with William Wykey. You just feel good about yourself. You start <laughs> strutting around, you start carrying yourself a little bit taller and the 
mental feedback that you get from your physical posture, I think is very powerful. And I know with power poses, there was initially, you know, everyone was talking about them. And then there was some blowback. Well, the science doesn't show that it actually gives you power or confidence. But then the pendulum has swung a little bit back to that they actually work. um, Because, you know, it, it is such an effective way of essentially tricking your brain into um, actually, you know, thinking that you're, you're confident and all that. And I think, uh, you know, these skills are, are really valuable. Uh, now Lisa, I did want to go back to one of the things that you said a couple minutes ago, uh, when you were talking about whenever you set a big goal, you go all in, you're a hundred percent in on the goal. And, you know, clearly I think this is the best way to go about things because if you're, uh, somewhat committed, then you're not fully committed and you're probably not going to get as much out of yourself during training and certainly not as much out of yourself on race day. But how do you strike the balance between being 100% all in, you know, 100% committed and having some balance in your life? Is it, how, how do you rectify that? Yeah, that's a really good question, just because, you know, we're all hard charging sort of type A personalities, sort of high achievers. And this is the really, and I, and I still battle with this on a daily basis, to be fair. I haven't probably got that, um, that whole formula right down because it is a really hard thing. If you, um, if you have, like, I'm studying functional genomics at the moment and epigenetics. So uh, this is a study of DNA and how your environment uh, affects your, your genes and so on. And when I'm now I'm learning about all these different genes, um, I'm understanding, crikey, I am controlled to a large degree by the chemicals that are running around in my head, you know. So I have a, a, a tendency, for example, um, without getting too sciencey, I have the sort of worst variant of the dopamine gene, which means that I don't get a lot of satisfaction and reward out of things that I do. So whether that's eating a piece of chocolate or whether that's finishing a race, I don't get this huge, great, oh, I did it, satisfaction reward. Um, And it's processed out of my body really quickly. So what that tends to lead to in combination with another couple of genes um, is uh, that I'm constantly chasing this elusive reward-seeking behavior, okay? So uh, and, and many type A personality people have this. So they're constantly chasing dopamine hits is what we're doing. And we're looking for the next big hit. And now this can work itself out to be quite a bad thing if you go down the bad track, you know, like getting into alcohol or drugs or doing that thing. Or it can lead to workaholism. It can lead to runaholism, if you like. Um, so these sort of addictive behavior traits because we're not getting it. So um, now when I understand this part of my personality and um, I can I can see when I'm starting to to spin out of control, meaning I'm starting to wind up because I have a tendency to go hard, harder, hardest and then crash, you know, emotional, have a bit of an emotional meltdown and then get back up and I can I can see this pattern over over my lifetime, right? So I'm going, okay, well, how do I avoid that now? How do I stay more in balance? How do I keep performing at a high level 
but also enjoying life. Um, and I, I wouldn't say I've got it 100% nailed, but just understanding for me, when I start to understand the science behind things, I understand now the importance of recovery. I understand that I need time to wind my brain down at nighttime, for example. I need to do more meditation. I need to do my deep breathing exercises. I need to go and have fun. I need to cuddle the cat sometimes. I need to go and cuddle my husband sometimes. And I and, and when you do these things that help keep you you in balance, whatever that combination is for you, um, you 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 start to f- uh, feel a greater sense of well-being, so that you're not um, spinning out of control, and you are achieving at a high level, but you're also living, you know. And and this has been a really tough one. I'll give you an example. Um, so four years ago, I had a, a massive situation in my family. My mum had a, a, a major aneurysm, which is a bleed in the brain, right? Um, and the, initially, she was taken into hospital. You get that horrible phone call, mum's collapsed, she's in hospital. And my mum is my world, anyone who knows me. She's just the most amazing mum. And this just broke my world apart, of course. And I'm, I'm up in the hospital and she was misdiagnosed for the first six hours. They just thought she had a migraine when she was actually dying right in front of their eyes with, you know, blood pouring through her brain. And when she finally, they, 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 they did a CT scan, it came out blood throughout the brain. They didn't think she'd survive, but they rushed her to hospital down in Wellington to another hospital, um, operated on her and by some miracle, she survived uh, three weeks in and out of coma in a critical condition, but she somehow pulled through, amazing surgeons and so on. After that period of time and after that mistake in the hospital, I was like, I have to be hypervigilant. I have to, I have to be the one to know what's going on. I'm not going to let another mistake happen, and I'm going to, if I get a second chance with my mum, I'm going to do everything in my power to bring, bring her back, and I, and I promised that to her even though she wasn't with it. When she came around after three weeks, she had virtually no higher function left. She had massive brain damage at the age of 74, so unable to um, speak, unable to control any of her bodily movements or any functions, um, unable to, you know, even push a button or find her mouth to put food in, nothing. Software not installed, you know, lights on, nobody home, and it was a dire situation and uh, three months in hospital, and in that time, I... I studied and I studied and I pushed myself to my absolute limit. At that time, I actually stopped doing the long distance running, Jason. I, I, I focused solely on her rehabilitation and I treated it like I was preparing for the biggest race of my life, which I was. And I studied everything I possibly could about brain injury and how I could help her. And the doctor said, like, there's no hope. She's you know, too old, She's the damage is too big, you just have to make her comfortable and put her in a hospital-level care facility. And as an athlete, Jason, I've seen people do amazing things. I know that the limits of human endurance and abilities haven't been tapped yet, so I just do not accept when someone tells me there is no hope. It just does not compute in my brain. And I'm like, no, nah, that's that's not happening and I'm not going to give up on her and I'm going to get her back. So I firstly discovered that she had um, sleep apnea, which is when you stop breathing at night and the oxygen levels in your blood uh, go down. And I'd done stuff at altitude before. And so I was seeing the same signs of hypoxia in her body. And so that was my very first win. Um, the doctors wouldn't do a sleep apnea assessment, so I brought in an outside consultant against the rules. 
and they did the assessment and came back extreme uh, sleep apnea. So she was knocking off her brain cells when she was asleep, and she was asleep for 20 hours a day, right? So she wouldn't. Um, she was chain-stoke breathing. She wouldn't have lived for more than a couple of months at that level. Um, and she was knocking off what little brain cells she had left. So that was my very first win. And then I started to think, what else can I do um, with oxygen? And I came across something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is a really amazing therapy for brain injuries and indeed for athletes and a whole plethora of, of ailments. And basically it's just hyper-oxygenating the body, and they use this for dive accidents. Anyway, so I, I did all my research there. I fought like crazy to get her home. Everything that I did with her, I had to battle 100% to get her the resources, to get the support we needed, to to get the tests I needed, to, you know, like if you just accept, like, and I don't know what it's like in America, but here if you just don't fight for the resources, you're not going to get them, you know, especially when you're over 65. Anyway, I, I, I managed to get her home after three months, and she's in very, very poor state, 24 hours around the clock here and I managed to get access to a hyperbaric chamber in a commercial dive company and they these wonderful people allowed me to use this and I had to sign a legal waiver and, and do all this but I thought this is the only shot that I've got so I did 33 treatments there if you can imagine being in a commercial dive factory where you're putting your really fragile mum on a forklift to stick her into this hyperbaric everyone thought I'd gone completely bonkers um, but I'd done the research. I knew that this could this could be the only chance. So after 33 treatments there, five days a week, over this period of five weeks or so, um, my mum started to how I express it is wake up. She started to started to respond and trying to move and trying to talk and trying to having little bits of memory. And I could just see her coming back. And I'm going, oh my god, this is working, right? And um, then I lost access to the hyperbaric chamber so then I went like this is about going all in and what I'm saying is I'm going all in right so then I mortgage the house I buy a hyperbaric chamber I install it in the house and that is not a simple thing to do and then I put her through another 250 sessions over the next two and a half three years and in this time then I'm studying the next things that I can do so I studied functional neurology to teach her retrain her brain and her whole vestibular system I changed her diet to a keto diet because for brain injury that's the way to go um, and I had her um, doing a program about eight hours a day um, working on different aspects teaching her to read to write to uh, took me took me 18 months just to teach her how to roll over in bed, like the thousands of hours of retraining her brain that went into this rehabilitation journey was, um, that was the ultramarathon of ultramarathons, you know, just to, to do this. Um, and my mum didn't have any conscious sort of awareness for the first year, but after that, when she started to get aware of what had happened to her, she fought as hard as I fought. So she had the same determination and that was super key because she didn't fight me every way you know she was with me every day training and this is a torturous difficult training like retraining the brain is just mind-blowing when you tell your hand to lift something up and it won't lift and you're trying to work out which muscle it is or it, it's just it's 
you know, a real lesson in patience and perseverance. And the whole time you're being told by medical professionals it's a waste of time. Why are you putting her through this torture? Your family's criticizing you because you're, why don't you just let her be and make her comfortable? But I don't, I don't do comfortable, you know. I do improving. I do goal setting. I do, I, I believe that human beings need to have big challenges and goals, whether you're five years old or 105. And I think that's one of the problems with our elderly population is we take away their goals and we make them comfortable. And that's that's the beginning of the end when you make them comfortable. You know, you're saying to them, you're no longer worthy, you're no longer of use to anybody. We'll do our duty to look after you physically, but you're no longer really wanted. And there was no way I was doing that with her. And so I treated her like one of my athletes. I got her in the gym environment. She's surrounded by other athletes. And that just changed her whole demeanor and approach. And everyone, of course, at the gym thinks she's wonderful and loves her. And a very long story short, Jace, four years on now, I've just released her book, and it's called Relentless, How a Mother and Daughter Defied the Odds. And my mum is completely normal again. She has her full driver's license. She has her full independence. She goes to the gym five days a week. She walks three Ks a day. She started even running 50 meters at a time. (laughs) Um, And it's the most amazing, most rewarding, most toughest journey I've ever been on. But if I had not been an all-in person, then there is no way in hell we would have ever done this incredible comeback journey. And and that is the power of being an athlete, I believe. If I hadn't had all those lessons as a as an athlete and overcoming obstacles and pushing through barriers, then I wouldn't have had the resilience and the persistence and the ability to fight when everybody's telling you no and get through all that to come out the other side and be, you know, now in a situation where my mum's got her life back and I've got my mum back, you know. What an incredible story, Lisa. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I, I'm just blown away at the progress your mom made. And, and you know, halfway through, I'm, I'm, I keep wondering to myself, how is she doing now? Is she okay? All these hyperbaric chamber sessions work. And I'm just so glad to hear that she's fully recovered and, and running now and going to the gym and doing all these crazy things. She's driving. I mean, that's just... That's just incredible. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. And, and I was going to ask you, Lisa, you know, how did some of your athletic challenges, some of these ultras, some of these uh, desert crossings, how do they help prepare you for other challenges that you've experienced yeah. in life? Because I really do think that a lot of the mental skills that we build from running, things like mental toughness, focus, drive, um, you know, uh, a confidence in our, in our abilities, these really do carry over into the rest of our life. And I think if we can work on them in very tangible, concrete, specific ways in our running, then we're going to just have many more mental resources to devote when we're dealing with our family, when we have professional obligations, or when you're dealt with dealt a crisis like this. And uh, I, I think you've, you've already answered uh, my question there. It was just, <laughs> what a story. It's just so it is, it, and this is why I am passionate about people doing pushing their limits, and I don't care whether their limits is running to the letterbox, and you know, which is sort of the level that Mum's at at the moment, or whether it, it's uh, running across a desert somewhere. Everybody's challenge is their own, and when they when they overcome that challenge and they get to the next level, it lifts their horizon of what they're capable of. 
And when, you know, like too often we, we give up just before we're about to have a breakthrough. And, I, and I've seen this in the rehabilitation journey has really brought that fact really clear to me that, um, I, I mean, I ended up opening a hyperbaric oxygen uh, clinic here because I had such success with it. And I was desperate for people to get access to this. And, um, you know, was expecting that everybody who walked in my door would have the, the sort of success that I had. But what I found was that most of the people, um, athletes were different. Athletes would come up. If I had said to an athlete, stick a carrot up your nose and jump up and down three times and you'll be healed, they would have done that, you know, because athletes know to do whatever I'm told by the coach and to do it the best of my ability. And I'm not going to question them if I trust the coach, right? Whereas the general public would come in who, you know, haven't had an athletic background and they would come in and go, well, what can this hyperbaric do for me? What are you going to do for me? And I go, I can't do anything for you. You have to make this, you know, this comeback journey if you're coming back from a stroke or whatever it was. You have to commit to this process and you have to do the work. And the hyperbaric is only a tool in the toolkit that is certainly going to help you, but it's going to require all this other stuff as well. And they didn't want to hear that most of the time. They want the magic pill. People want to go to the doctor or the therapist and get a pill that tells them that that's going to, they take the pill and magic happens and then they're suddenly better. And I was really disheartened for a long time when I realized I could not save everybody that came through the door. Um, and and I, and I and I was frustrated with my inability to motivate them to do it. And then I've realized that you just cannot, you can lead a horse to water, right, but you can't make it drink. And it really is the attitude of the people that are coming in and, and the person helping them if they're coming back from a stroke, whether they have the commitment to see this process through and whether it's really worth it to them. Because a lot of people would come in, they'd do two or three sessions, they'd see nothing happen. And they'd go, well, it doesn't work. I'm out of here. And I'll be like, oh, you just, you know, three sessions. You don't walk into a gym one day and come out looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Everybody knows that. But people don't understand is it's the same thing for everything in life. There is no magic bullet. You have to put in the the hard yards, the, the tough times. And if you have that commitment to seeing the process through, and especially with something like uh, hyperbaric because it causes epigenetic shifts in the genes, but it takes 20, 30-plus sessions for those epigenetic shifts to actually even start the process. So it takes a, a longer-term commitment, right? Um, and when you can't get that, the people to buy into that, um, they, won't, they won't succeed. And, and, I find, and I found that a real struggle, um, you know, and still find that a struggle as a coach even, <laughs> you know, when someone comes to you for coaching and you, 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 you give them the best of your knowledge and your ability and they don't, they go home and they don't do the training, they don't do the hard work and you're like, ah, oh, I failed as a coach, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And that's quite frustrating at times. And then you start to know uh, who are the ones that are going to get the results because you can see the ones that are committed to the process. And, and that is that is what we want everyone to develop, those skills of being committed to whatever they're in and going all in. Yeah, the the issue of of commitment and being able to to commit to 
whether it's a course of treatment or a training plan or a coach or, or anything like that is just such, uh, so indicative of your future success that I think, uh, we should all try to commit a little bit more and, and make less, ex- fewer excuses. Cause I've certainly experienced that, uh, as a coach as well, you know, someone, you know, they're a week in and they're like, this isn't working. I'm like, well, the body doesn't really respond in a week to whatever new that you're doing. We have to give it some time. And uh, very frequently that might take months and months. And, you know, unfortunately, patience is uh, not too common these days. No. And we live in a world of instant gratification. And, you know, we want we want to be super fast and have that six pack and have all, you know, have all these things without putting the actual hard yards in a lot of the time. And unfortunately, that's just not the way the world works. You know, you have to, you have to, uh, I think, you know, like another lesson that I've learned also is that strength comes from struggle. So the more you have to fight for things, the stronger you will be, whether that's in the physical sense of lifting weights, where you're actually, you know, breaking your muscles down and uh, actually tearing the fibers when you're doing your weight training but you're actually recovering and recovering stronger um you know that's what happens when you go through something difficult you in the first instance you're doing something negative but it actually causes a stronger response and you get stronger at something um and that's that's a principle again that goes right across through everything in life no no strength comes without struggle um it's just part of that whole process For sure. I I think the stress adaptation cycle that we hear a lot about in exercise physiology also applies to our minds, to our brains. We have to stress our mind and do something uncomfortable like reading a hard book or, you know, anytime you're learning something difficult or you're trying to ingrain a new habit into your, you know, daily habits, that is difficult. But if you do commit, then I think it's going to be far easier for you to uh, accomplish, you know, whatever goal you might be going after. Um, Lisa, I really enjoyed talking with you this afternoon. Uh, you just have such a great perspective on the mental side of running. Uh, and, and I was curious, you know, we talked a lot about, um, you know, the mental skills that you've learned from running that you applied to your life and specifically with helping your mom rehabilitate from her aneurysm. Did you take any mental skills or or lessons from that experience that you now use in your running yeah um when i mean uh, uh, one of the things i learned in this process was you know because i used to sometimes get down on myself for not being as super talented and not being as fast as i wanted to be and you know now i'm grateful that i can tie my own shoelaces you know now I'm grateful that I don't have to struggle just to put my own shoes on or you know like it it changes your I think that what this journey has taught me is how much we as you know healthy individuals take for granted that people with disabilities are fighting for the simplest things so that's that's brought me a lot of gratitude and uh, acceptance uh, about you know where I'm at in the journey. Um, so that's one thing that this rehabilitation journey has also taught me. And then also uh, for me, it is, it's been um, patience. Like patience has never been one of my virtues. I want to do stuff and I want, to, want it to happen now. And I've had to learn to slow things down and to be patient and persistent. So uh, it's definitely been a two-way street and I've actually not looked at it 
at, at it from that point of view. But um, it's definitely helped, you know. And Joseph, I've been like, um, I, I, once my mum had this this aneurysm, I stopped doing the long distance stuff for for obvious reasons because it required, you know, full full commitment in that area and and this is something and I just wanted to touch on briefly when you fully commit to something understand that there will be sacrifice in other parts of your life so you have to pick your battles that you're going to go for and understand that you can't do everything and I think especially a lot of women that we train I see them trying to be super woman super mom super career woman super sexy super fit super at everything you know, like we are human beings, we have limitations, we have physical, um, we need sleep, we need to lower our stress levels, we we have, you know, we have uh, 24 hours in a day only, um, you cannot be perfect and, and I think we need to understand that when we do commit to something, it will mean sacrifice in another area. So understand that and be okay with that and have that conversation with yourself. So when mum had this aneurysm, I had to have a conversation with myself. I was, um, you know, that was going to be the end of my ultra running career for the foreseeable future. And I had to be okay with that. And I've struggled with that because it's an identity loss as an athlete coming to the end of their career, if you like, in the competitive sense um, and going, well, who am I if I'm not that, you know, Um, but realizing, you know, this was way more important than my ego and there was no option. Um, But coming to terms with that over the, over the time has been um, quite a battle for me as well. And I think a lot of athletes who go through, you know, retire from their professional or their competitive careers really have that struggle finding that identity after their career is, is over in that sense. Um, And that's been a, um, a challenge for me to go through. And I'm really in a good place about that now, but it has been, you know, an up and down journey of, you know, um, not being able to get, you know, I can't roll out of bed and run 100Ks. And I could, you know, used to just do that. I could do that at any time. And now it's a struggle for me to run a half marathon, you know. So it's a complete shift in my my abilities and um, that's taken a shift in, in my mentality. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not fit. Now, I train differently now. And so I've created a new identity. So what I'm trying to say is we can reinvent ourselves at any time. We're not stuck doing the same thing because that's what we've always done. And for a long time, I thought, well, I'm nobody if I'm not this ultra marathon runner. And now I realize, well, actually, no, I'm really loving CrossFit and short, sharp trainings and, and changing it up. And I feel actually you know, fitter and leaner and stronger. But, yeah, I can't run 100Ks right now. You know, um, and that 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 change and that sacrifice, and that's okay. And and understanding you cannot have it all all of the time, and you cannot be all to everybody. Give yourself a break sometimes, especially ladies out there trying to be super mums and super career ladies and everything. It's it's you, you know it's a pretty hard juggle sometimes, and you do have to prioritize recovery, rest, relaxation, and it's not being selfish. It's refilling your cup so that you can help fill other people's cups as, as well. And I think that's another great point to bring home. 
I couldn't have put it better myself, Lisa. Uh, I think it's really important to be honest with yourself with what you're able to accomplish. Because I know, you know, when I was running 80 to 90 miles a week and I was training really hard and, and I was at my peak fitness, a, lo- a lot of other things just couldn't have happened. You know, I did not go out as much with my friends and they were very disappointed in me all the time because I would go home early or I would, you know, skip a party or something like that. But you know, when you're getting ready for a race and something's really important to you, then you have to make those tough choices. And as a coach now, I certainly experience it because there's, you know, some runners who have these certain goals and, and they may be in conflict with one another. You know, you can't train for a hundred mile race at the same time that you're really trying to put on 30 pounds of muscle, you know, <laughs> they're very physiologically competing goals right there. Yeah. Uh, and you know, being honest with ourselves and coming to terms with what we're doing and what we can go all in on, I think is a very important part of the process to, to gaining some of these mental skills and becoming a more mentally fit athlete. Yeah. And so picking your, picking your battles. I mean, even with the, you know, training, I just had a coaching call with one of my athletes just prior to this call, uh, three big ultras back to back, like 24 hour, hundred miles, so on. Um, and I'm going, oh, crocky, you know, like I know you'll get through it, but I want you to take some serious time off afterwards, you know, because we have this mentality, oh, but, you know, someone like Dean Carnassus has run X amount of whatever hundreds and he's just doing back-to-back and why can't I? And it's like, yeah, well, (laughs) we have physiological reasons why we shouldn't be doing that (laughs) Um, and certainly not for too long. And then you always have the exceptions to the rule, but that doesn't mean that you uh, should or, you know, try to do too much in too short a time period unless you're wanting to blow yourself to pieces. And, you know, I've been there and done that. I've blown myself to pieces because I thought I was bulletproof and I thought that I could just do back-to-back-to-back races over years. And it led to a lot of health problems that, as a coach, you also want to help people avoid. So sometimes it's a bit of a juggling act between the, the, the sporting achievement and their health. And health and fitness are two different things. That's what I've also come to realize is that just because someone is extremely fit in one way, like might be ultra running, that does not necessarily mean they're actually in a healthy state. And it does not mean that they may be fit when it comes to doing a yoga session or a CrossFit session. We, they're different, different beasts. And we should never compare apples with oranges for a starters, you know, because you often get runners, well, you know, well, I run ultras I and mean, you only run marathons or, you know, you get the marathon runner talking to the 100-meter sprinter and they're going, oh, but, you know, 100-meter sprinting is just far more superior to, to marathon running and you guys are do- doing it super slow and it's no quality and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you guys, you, you, you're missing the whole point. You know, like this, this apples and oranges, completely different things. It's not, not com- comparable and each is difficult. I had a conversation yesterday with a young lady who was a 400 and 800 meter track athlete and she was uh, in awe of the stuff that I'd done and I'm going, no, I'm in awe of what you do because I can't go fast. So everybody is always looking at over there what the others can do and not and seeing what you can't do instead of going, yeah, this is what I'm into and this is what I'm good at and that's cool and isn't that amazing what she's doing over there? You know, they stop comparing apples with oranges, you know. Um, a 100-meter sprinter is an incredible athlete doing incredible things, and a marathoner and an ultramarathoner are uh, incredible athletes doing incredible things. 
and that's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I think all, all of us athletes doing different things, you know, they're all hard and unique and and challenging in their own in their own ways. And yeah, there's no reason to, you know, to talk down to the person who only runs 5Ks or the marathoner or the ultra marathoner or the 100 meter runner. You know, there's uh, no matter the distance, every event is hard if you try to maximize your performance. And that is true no matter if it's, you know, the, the 50 yard dash or the 100 mile ultra. Every distance is challenging to master and every distance is challenging to train for. Uh, Lisa, I had such a great time talking with you today. I really value your perspective on things, uh, your vulnerability with sharing, you know, your mom's story and how you helped her, uh, almost unbelievably recover. And now she's driving to the gym and bench pressing or deadlifting. It's crazy. Um, you know, you just, you've, you've lived such an incredible life and you have so many amazing stories. Uh, it's, it's very inspiring to me and no doubt to our listeners. Um, and, and I think you've used a lot of your life experiences to teach others and bring hope to a lot of people. So thank you so much for being here. Thank, Jason, thank you so much. And I can't wait to have you on my show. I've got a podcast called Pushing the Limits, which I'm going to have Jason on because I think it's really, really cool. I've followed you for a, a long time. I've admired your coaching um, philosophies and, and system and, and thought, wow, you've, you've got it nailed. So I really appreciate the, the chance to come on your show and just to hang out with you because, um, you know, just people that I respect and think, Wow, I'd love to meet them one day. And now I've had the chance thanks to a couple of friends. So um, thanks, Sanjay and Brody, for introducing us. I really appreciate that. And, you know, it's really great, I think, as coaches on other ends of the world doing um, doing different things, uh, but very similar philosophies and beliefs. Um, and it's great that we can just network together and, and share that information with, with our young athletes and older athletes. Yeah, absolutely. And if if you're ever in the states, come and come to Denver, Colorado. I would love to to go for a run with oh, you. And wow. that'll be awesome. the same is true if um if I'm ever in uh, New Zealand. I was there uh, a while back. I think oh. I was in. I forget the little the a tiny little town in on the South Island. Um, right near one of those famous um, Great Walks, and I did. Um, some running on the trail, not, not a lot, but it was just so beautiful. I mean, you live in one of the most beautiful countries in the world and, uh, it would just be, I, I wish I could take like all of my podcast listeners to New Zealand just for like <laughs> a couple weeks of trail running. It would just be incredible. Yeah. We've got some special places over here and, and by the same token, I mean, Colorado is pretty, uh, pretty out there as well. Um, so I'd love to, yeah, hopefully we actually get to meet one day. That would be great. Once this COVID dramas hopefully left the world at some stage and we're able to move again. Um, But yeah, New Zealand has got some fantastic races. We've got some really neat um, trail events down here Um, and uh, it's a beautiful place to come and visit. So definitely do that. Yeah. And Lisa, I found out it was Te Anau. Oh, Tiano. Tiano. Yep. Yes. Okay. Maori word. So it's quite hard to pronounce and that's down in uh, Fiordland. So right down the South Island, um, very, very beautiful area. Like it's a world heritage area down there. Um, yeah, I was down by the, uh, the Kepler track trail and, and I, and I think I ran South on that trail next to the Waiu, 
the Waiu River. I'm yep. totally butchering the pronunciation no, no, of that. Really well, perfect. Now that, that's <laughs> yeah, and and the Kepler is a really famous ultramarathon here, and one that you have to you know sort of be in online the second it opens and two minutes later it's full type of, <laughs> type of race. Um, very cool. I actually haven't done that one. Um, uh, and I live in the North Island in a place called Taranaki, which is also a really beautiful mountain. We've got a mountain that looks like Fuji and we've got great surf. So we've got a bit of everything in our in our hometown. So it's a pretty special place. But, um, yeah, come to New Zealand. I'd love to hang out with you, mate. <laughs> oh, I, I'm on the next plane. I okay. Now I just want to go for some trail running. I love it. <laughs> well, Lisa, thanks again for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, I can't wait to chat even more on your podcast. Yeah, it'd be great. And if anybody wants to come and check out the book or anything that we're doing, um, lisatarmaty.com is the website if you want to head over there and find it. And the book is also on Amazon um, and it's just called Relentless. Yes. And I will include links to Lisa's website and her book and other resources uh, on the blog post that goes with this podcast episode. So you can always check out the show notes there at strengthrunning.com. Awesome, Jason. Thank you so much. Wonderful, Lisa. Thank you. And there we have it. I absolutely loved this episode, and it's my goal to bring you even more inspiring and actionable conversations just like these in the future. Be sure to check out Lisa's book, Relentless, and if this episode moves you, I'd very much appreciate a review in Apple Music. And another big thanks to Path Projects for supporting this podcast. They've launched a bunch of new products over the last couple weeks, including the Sykes shorts and the Wildcat shorts. And I was hesitant to get two of their new t-shirts because I already have a lot of t-shirts and how different could they really be? Well, I'm glad that I was wrong and I got these because they're now my two favorite shirts. I don't have any t-shirts that are softer and that have quite a nice stretch to them. They're perfect for summer and wrestling around with my kids, and I'm loving the fact that all their products are affordable, they're durable, and they're just so comfortable. Learn more about them and see their new lineup of shorts at pathprojects.com. Thank you again for listening, for loving running like you do, and for being part of this special community. I wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you. Until next time.